Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and you're welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, living as we are under lockdown, I suppose it's prompted some people to reassess how exactly we are living. Maybe it's the, the conditions that now pertain and I suppose even just having time in our hands. But the subject of whether we can go back to the old ways of doing things or not arises frequently. I mean, is there any chance that as a society we can reassess our goals and priorities? Like what exactly it is that we value and whether or not we're living in a manner that's sustainable in the long run? Or will everything just revert to the old hectic pace that so many of us were living at before the pandemic. One person who has been suggesting a different way of doing things for a long time is my guest today, Anne Ryan. Anne is a lecturer in adult education at Minute University and somewhat presciently she wrote a book 10 years ago entitled Enough is Plenty. I suppose a title that's somewhat self-explanatory. Anne is also one of the coordinators of Basic Income Ireland and we'll get to the subject of basic income, which is quite topical at the moment, shortly. But first, Anne, you're welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And a tough question to begin with. Um, <laughs> could you encapsulate what exactly you were advocating for in your book, Enough is Plenty? Right. 20 words or less. <laughs> um, I suppose the whole concept of enough is a very old one. You know, it's at the centre of a lot of the big wisdom traditions. The book of Proverbs says, give me neither poverty nor wealth. The Romans had the idea of the golden mean. So it's an ancient idea around sufficiency and satisfaction. And in fact, the the Latin for enough is satis, which is the root of the word satisfaction. So it's about being, uh, understanding really the value of sufficiency and about, about being content. It's not about in fact, in modern English, we've tended to denigrate or the, the nature of the word and think that it's about mediocrity, but it's actually about optimum and it's about everything flourishing in relation to each other. And I, the way I looked at it was that I think it has roots in ecology. It shows the way everything is connected and interdependent and diversity. It also has a real ethical foundation about equality and sharing and sufficiency for everybody. So there's a, a social justice um, strand to it. And then also, if you look at uh, the whole notion of an aesthetics or beauty, that's also something where you have where you have to have limits because if something is too big or, you know, if it overgrows itself, it's it's ugly. And then it also I made the connection in the book with them um, between the roots of the word ecology and economics. So that eco, it, it actually, that means the world, that, that word means the world. So eco, ecology is about how we know everything about the world. And economics is how we use the resources of the world in a, in a good way. And we need to do that to fit the capacity of the earth, because we are using an awful lot of the earth's resources. We're using them up and we're also creating too much pollution so that the sinks 
that can absorb our pollution are getting overwhelmed. So we need to fit economics into the capacity of the earth. Uh, so it's about it's very much then about the language of the earth and of nature and a kind of deeper philosophy of care. So care for people and care for the planet. That was the foundation of the book. OK, no, I suppose if to try and put that in a, a practical context and maybe even a societal context, I mean, how would that philosophy fit with what appears to be a general trend and a trend that's been there for decades, if not centuries, of people effectively attempting not necessarily to accumulate wealth, but to get on and to see themselves as being successful by having a particular standard of living? Yeah, so I suppose the distinction there is to make the distinction between um, accumulating and so standard of living is, is often thought about accumulating more and more stuff and then quality of life. So the two don't often don't go together that, you know, people find if they have a, too many possessions, actually, they're overwhelmed by them. Now, the whole thing about enough really is that it's very much, I suppose, it's aimed at rich societies, which where people often do have really too much. And uh, it's not about, you know, it's not saying that we mustn't grow at all. I suppose the whole trend in economics has been towards towards growth, a very, um, a very kind of indiscriminate growth of, you know, any any sort of growth will do. I suppose and a narrow definition of growth really, isn't it? Yeah, very narrow, like just measuring GDP, you know, um, uh, so any any increase in GDP is seen as progress, so a very narrow definition of progress. And I suppose what the whole movement around enough is saying is that you need to kind of disaggregate all of that and you need to look at, well, what sectors do we need to grow and what sectors do we need to, to shrink, really? And I suppose, the you know, in the recent kind of crisis, we are seeing the stuff that we need to grow. We need to grow all of the care work that's that's in society. We need to grow the public sphere so that people are supported need to have sort of public what what um, George Monbiot calls public luxury. And so we maybe need to look more at private frugality uh, in our personal lives. But that's not to say that the frugality is kind of mean spirited or, you know, without without joy or without conviviality. It's really about the way that less is more, you know, and that how kind of simplicity yeah. is good. Well, let me put it this way, Tian. Take somebody who has done relatively well in life, and again, using that phrase well, as we tend to measure these things. But for example, take somebody, they have a nice house, uh, they go on maybe, let's for example say, a couple of foreign holidays a year, they'd spend a certain amount of money on consumer goods to live what we, I suppose, in a wealthy society like ours, people would regard as a good quality of life. That person, John A and Jane A, let's call them, would you suggest that they had more than enough and that in, in a, a better society they would reassess how exactly they're living? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't like to criticise, you know, any individuals, but I think we say in terms of travel, you know, the fast travel the frequent sun holidays and so on. I think it's not a question that we shouldn't be traveling, but that we should be maybe traveling a, a bit more slowly and traveling in, in more satisfying ways and maybe traveling um, traveling to learn and traveling for, for, for culture. And then in terms of the sort of possessions that people have, 
um, that people should really try to have the, the highest quality possessions that they can and, and that they're durable and that they make them last and that you repair them and recycle them instead of always, you know, going for the new thing. Like, I mean, fashion is one of the big things that's always quoted there, the disposability of fashion. I mean, I definitely think that that needs to be looked at, that very high consumerist, very fast turnover of things. So there is there is a I do think there is a need for everyone in rich societies to look at at those kind of things in their lives. I, I'm not you know, I'm not equivocal in any way about saying that. And I suppose you can come across sometimes being quite judgmental when you say things like but that. But actually, people when you know, when they make those kind of changes, they do find things are are very satisfying for them. And they do find, you know, the best things in life are free. And I think that's one of the things that people are finding now is the quality of relationships and the other forms of wealth. So that we we broaden the definition of what wealth is and we broaden the definition of what growth and, and progress are and that we're discerning. If I, I suppose if enough is about anything, it's about being discerning and kind of always asking the question, well, Who's benefiting here? Do you know what effect is this having on the environment around me? What effect is it having on other people who maybe made something that's coming from a long way away that, you know, that I can't actually see? So it's questions. It's very much a, it questions. Um, and I suppose it will be a different for everybody in many ways in their personal lives. Yeah. And I'd suggest that that's key. Like, for example, I think, and I'd agree with you, and, and certainly by any measure, this is a rich society. Not that it feels like that to a lot of people, but relative to most other countries, certainly in terms of headline value, it, it is a wealthy society. But within society, you would have a lot of people. They certainly feel they're not getting enough. And you have others for whom it's a very subjective thing, like when is enough? Do you know what I mean? How do you go about shaping any kind of public policy that encourages people to think in that way as opposed to the traditional way we think, which measures success with the accumulation of uh, wealth or whatever, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it can it can seem very incongruous to say we're a very rich society when we have people homeless and people in such in such poverty, mm. you know, so. So within rich societies, we have those pockets of, of people who simply don't have enough. So and I think the growth, the growth, the story of growth is very strong. It's a very, very strong ideology that people are are not well equipped, not well educated to to question. You know, we're always or if GDP is up, that's a good thing. If GDP is falling, that's just a blanket bad thing. Um, so I suppose there is a need for leadership on that and. There are certain public policies, I suppose, that that um, kind of encapsulate the whole idea of enough that put that put limits on things, because um, if, if enough is about anything, it's recognising where the boundaries are and when, when enough is actually enough. Could you give us an example of some policies that would fall into that category? Well, in, in relation to, say, climate change, something like a cap on fossil fuels, an actual binding cap on the amount of fossil fuels that come into an economy, that would be a really, a really strong public policy. And then a, an actual sharing out of the, the amount of fossil fuels among among the among the population. 
Uh, another one would be land value taxes, where um, inst instead of the conventional property tax that we know now, the thing that you tax is actually the way that value accrues to to land by virtue of its location. So, for example, and somebody who owns a piece of land, uh, if it's in a really, you know, a kind of good location, the, the value of that piece of land increases, but the owner doesn't actually do anything to create that extra value. It's the work of the community and all the stuff that's going on around it, you know, the sort of facilities that are around that piece of land that increase the value um, of the land. So a taxation on the value on the extra value that's accruing to the land. So what, that's what they call land value or site value taxes. That's another one. So it, that's about sharing. So getting away from the idea of just constantly growing and saying, yes, we are rich, we have a lot of wealth, but what we need to do is sharing. So that's very much at the heart of the, the whole concept of enough is that we share so that there is sufficient for everyone. And then, of course, there is basic income, which I know we're going to talk a bit about in also. Yeah, it seems at the heart of it as well, and is this notion, and this is particularly applying to perhaps the half or whatever percentage it is of society that are doing relatively well, that there be a change of mindset from perhaps the individual or their immediate family, for example, to the collective. It would strike me. And if that's what it is, that's, I would suggest, a very difficult concept to get people to uh, rally around. Yeah, I mean, so you can do that in two ways. You could do it um, by saying, look, appealing to solidarity. You know, let's all do this because uh, because we owe it to, to all of us. Um, and that's that's a hard one to sell. I mean, obviously, some people do do adopt that view of solidarity. But you could also say, well, um, you could say, well, you need to do this out of enlightened self-interest to people who, are, who aren't really sold on the idea, because I would I would try to sell the idea by saying that um, you need a strong society around you, you know, that the individual and the, the small group or the small household. Yes, of course, you can try and, you know, fence yourself in and protect yourself and so on, but only up to a point within society and that. Um, a more equal, more sharing type of society is better for everyone in the long run. And um, the work the, of, of Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, they wrote a book called The Spirit Level a few years mm. ago that shows really that the more equal, the more the more sharing and the more equality that's in society, um, the better it is because crime rates fall, health is improved. So, the, you know, mental health is better. So there are numerous benefits. So even if you can't get people to adopt the, the view that the collective is important simply out of solidarity, I would be saying, look, you better you should really try to think about this out of for your own good in the long run. And just briefly back to that concept of solidarity, I think it's interesting. A lot of people would suggest, and there's a certain amount of evidence there to back it up, that in the current pandemic and and. Uh, horrible public health scenario we find ourselves in, there is a certain amount of solidarity, I think, that may not have been here before. But there would also be a fear that once society, economies, countries, what you might say, get back up on the horse, that that will disappear. And in fact, there was a, a memo, I think, to government, there was a story about it um, in the media, that uh, it was, it has been pointed out that that solidarity won't sustain 
through the times to come because there's going to be a lot of tough decisions to make. So, I mean, what I'm trying to say, really, Anne, is solidarity, you can locate it in society as we seem to have at the moment, but keeping it going in what are relatively normal times would be a lot more difficult. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about that. You know, um, I mean, I, I'm I'm under no illusions about the the um do you know how strong this idea is you know i've been plugging this idea for a long time and and others before me i'm not particularly original in anything i'm saying um and i've been you know i've often been asked to speak about this and i've been told i'm naive and and you know off the wall uh but nevertheless, I believe in it, but I'm not under any illusions about the a widespread adoption of it, to be perfectly honest. I, I mean, I do hope that I think crisis can help people to reassess. And, and the very word emergency is really interesting because it does allow new things to emerge uh, or not, not necessarily new things, but, you know, ideas that have been kind of not given much attention can emerge. So I, I can't really say any, any more than that. Yeah. Yourself, actually, as I understand, you, you were involved in the setting up of a community farm in Selbridge. Tell us a bit about that. Well, well, after I wrote the book, Enough is Plenty, I thought, you know, I could keep writing. And it's not an academic book. It's for the general public. But I thought I have to. I actually want to try and put wheels on the ideas that I'm talking here because a huge part of the book is about food and the the community economy and the local economy and the importance of food and food resilience. So I thought I actually have to try and try and do something, you know, to show that I'm really serious about about it. And a community supported farm is one where a number of people come together. They pay money up front and they that money pays a wage to a farmer who grows food for them, vegetables in this case. And then each each week throughout the harvest time, the people get food in return. Um, but you pay the membership fee no matter what. So even if the harvest is poor, you still pay the, the same fee. So that in itself is a very is an act of solidarity around providing a wage, a, a very modest wage, I should say for um, a grower or a farmer. So, yeah, I started that with a couple of other people in my locality in Selbridge um, in 2012. Uh, So it's still going strong. It was a very difficult thing to do because we didn't have land. So we had, you know, that was our real problem. Um, Some farmers do it uh, who already own land. They transfer into that community supported model. uh, And that's probably a little bit easier um, but we had to find the land. We eventually ended up renting some land from the county council, which isn't the best land for growing and so on. Nevertheless, a community has formed around the farm and it's been fantastic. And it's a real focal point for people to come to. And would there be many people involved in that? We are supplying food for about 40 households, a box of vegetables each week um, now throughout the harvest period. And we, we could go to about 60. So the idea is that... Um, you know, we might act as a model for others in the locality to do the same thing. And there's about there's probably 10 or 12 farms like that in that model in Ireland as a whole. And so, you know, again, that's about, I suppose um, it's about enough. It's having a modest wage for somebody. It's about security. It's about community and, and solidarity. And also it's about a lot of hard work. 
Um, but that kind of work doesn't attract a very big wage at the moment. And, and that's another thing. Yeah. And I suppose on a basic level, and I can only speak from um, personal experience, experience that I would not be proud of, but I suppose it's a reflection of the modern life. It's also a hell of a lot of a better way to be getting your vegetables than going into one of the big supermarkets and having this stuff packaged in so much plastic and I suppose as well you don't know how long it's been there etc where it's come from whereas your community farm model that you're setting out is very much back to basics. Yeah I mean it's it's great people see where their fo- their food is growing they come to the farm to collect it they meet the farmer they meet each other you know there's a kind of a social life around the farm as well particularly in the summer we'd often have parties for the kids or you know treasure hunts and bonfires and things um so it's very real and uh it's not the only model of farming that we need obviously i i, I mean i think we need um a lot of what i wrote about in the book was how we need to support a huge diversity of models of farming uh, in ireland and elsewhere a lot of you know more more small farms and better food uh, but that's a much separate conversation that you might like to do another podcast yeah we will we actually absolutely and now, as we mentioned earlier, you're also involved in Basic Income Ireland. That is something that has become topical during the current emergency as well. And we have just seen this week that, uh, for example, in, in terms of government formation, the Green Party have um, put forward a number of proposals, questions, demands, whatever you want to call them, to the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael parties. And among them is a suggestion that there be, at the very least, a trial of universal basic income. That I I would guess, Anne, for somebody like yourself who has been involved in Basic Income Network for so long, must be music to your ears. Yeah, I'm very pleased to see it. In fact, um, I just saw it this afternoon a little while before we spoke and they had a fully, the Green Party had a fully costed proposal in their election manifesto there a couple of months ago as well. So yeah, I suppose, again, after I, I published the book, I thought I would get involved in in the basic income movement here in Ireland because I feel it's worth putting a lot of effort into basic income. It's, I'm not. I would not for a moment suggest basic income is one of is the only thing we need, but I think it's one of the crucial things that we need. And if everyone had a basic income, uh, it would make a lot of other things possible. Before we talk about basic income too long, I'm just aware that there would be a a lot of people who still perhaps are not familiar with the basics of basic income. If you you could just tell us about that. Yeah. So a basic income is a a modest payment to every legal resident administered by the state, coming from the state, from cradle to grave. Um, so the minute you were born and registered until you actually died, you would be receiving an income from the state. We already have it in the form of um, uh, child benefit and we have it in the form of state pension. So we're, we're would, a basic income then would extend to everyone between 18 and the pension age and it would replace the core social welfare payments like job seekers and illness benefit. And it would uh, replace the the um, tax credit that anyone who's earning gets. So that would be coming into your bank account, your post office account every week. And then if you were it's never it's always tax free. So if you any if you were earning money, every every penny you would earn would be taxed. But your basic income would always remain the same. A detail about that. 
So you're saying, for example, I'm running a major airline, I'm earning 10 million a year. I'm working for the county council in semi-skilled labour. I'm earning 15,000, so we'll say 20,000 a year. Both me's there, to put it that way, would be receiving on top of my salary or wage or whatever, this basic income, as well as anybody, for example, who is unemployed. The three examples there, everybody would be receiving this basic income on top of their normal circumstances. Yeah, everyone, everyone is the same. So everyone is accorded the same dignity and everyone receives the same amount. The person, so for the person who's currently on job seekers, the only difference they would notice is they don't have to sign on anymore. They don't have to prove they're looking for work. The person in the 20,000 euros job might notice a little bit extra in their take home pay. Uh, and everyone else in their household would have it as well. There wouldn't be much difference for people in employment. But if they lost their job or if they wanted to leave it, they would instantly have the basic income. There'd be no signing on, nothing like that. And then the person who's running a big airline, uh, they would be receiving the basic income, but they would, in their taxation, they would be paying for a couple of other people's basic income. So what you're doing there is you're shifting the means testing. You're getting rid of means testing before people get paid, and you're shifting it into the tax office. So at the end of the year, everyone does their tax return and that's where the means testing takes place. Okay, two issues that would arise there and that would be brought up immediately, I would think, first of all, the the wealthy person, is it a waste of precious public money to be giving the wealthy person any money like that? A similar argument, for example, is often made about child benefit for those who are better off. The second part of the argument is people who are unemployed, is there, does a system of universal basic income mean that there is no incentive for them to attempt to get a job? Okay, so the first um, aspect is uh, the, the, it's, it's administratively simpler to give it to everybody. But the, the very rich person is paying more tax. So they, as I said, you know, they pay at the other end and they pay for, they actually pay, their tax pays for someone else's basic income or more than one basic income. Um, so, uh, but, and, but if they fall on hard times, their basic income is there instantly. And like up to the COVID-19 crisis, you could have laughed at that argument and said, well, that doesn't happen. But we have seen a lot of people who are, you know, in a in a major um, surprising crisis have fallen on hard times and their jobs can go. So the COVID-19 payments have 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 absorbed a lot of that and taken a lot of the shock out of that for people. But they're going to run out at some stage. So what's going to happen then? And, and so there's a lot of stuff like that, you know, mm. things that we thought might never happen have happened. And then. Your other question um, about is there any incentive for the the person who is unemployed to take up work? Well, there's always a financial incentive for them because they never lose the basic income. That remains the same. So anything they earn, even if it's only two, three, four hours paid work per week, they, they keep part of that. They pay tax on it, but they keep part of it. So they're always financially better off by taking up a job. I suppose in that vein, and you could argue that and and it's something I've come across in in my work as a journalist that you have that so-called poverty trap that somebody who is who is unemployed or on, on job seekers allowance and they're offered maybe a day or two a week 
it's simply not worth their while to take it off because they'd lose their allowance. Whereas in a system that you're advocating for, they could take on half a day, they could take on one, they could take on three, five days, whatever came up. And as well, I suppose, people, for example, it could impinge on situations where people are involved in working in the home and childcare and that sort of thing as well. Exactly. Yeah, the poverty trap is eliminated. And I think that's one of the really, really important things about basic income. And yes, it gives people a lot more kind of meaningful choices about how they want to spend their time. You know, do they do they want to work shorter job hours in order to do more care or to cooperate or to, say, work on the community supported farm or, you know, do voluntary work? It allows people a lot more flexibility to cut back, say, on, on job hours if that's what they want. Has it been tried anywhere? You've probably heard about the trial that took place in Finland a couple of years ago. They did a two-year experiment. Now, it was very limited in that it only went to 20,000 people chosen at random throughout the country who were already unemployed. And the, the, the idea was to see would it, um, how it would affect their participation in the labour force. So the results are just coming through at the moment. Um, from the first year, there's no real change in people's relationship to the labour labor market, but people are reporting a lot less stress and improved physical and mental health. And we haven't really got any results from the, the second year yet. Um, there, there have been numerous trials throughout the world, like there was some in India funded by a, tr- a trade union very interesting stuff came out of that about how people um, started small businesses and so on. And there was in the 1970s, believe it or not, in the province of Manitoba in Canada, there was um, something very like a basic income. It was called Mincom. Now, it's not exactly the same as basic income because very rich people didn't get it. That went on for five years until there was a change of government. And there's been a load of... Uh, data um, analysed out of that showing greatly improved um, mental health, fewer GP visits, fewer hospital visits, young people staying longer in education. Some some people did drop out of the labour force, but they were mostly women who had small children. So I, I think that's definitely worth looking at for anyone who's interested. It was called Mincom and the researcher was Evelyn Forget, F-O-R-G-E-T. Okay, the, the one thing that would strike me there, Anne, is that if we weren't starting from here, it certainly would be something, as the Green Party are proposing, for example, that should be, or certainly could be, experimented with. However, where it looks like we're starting from is a pretty dire place financially, and certainly in the early stages, and before you would reap any sort of benefits, even in terms of physical, mental health, etc., as well as societal well-being, You'd be talking a number of years down the road. Will there be any appetite for it? Because it's going. it would cost money initially at a time when money is, as the song says, looks like it's going to be too tight to mention. Yeah, I mean, up to the crisis, um, we a lot of work had been done by Social Justice Ireland and the Green Party showing how it could be afforded more or less now. You know, because there is a lot. You have to realise um, that all the, the money that's going out in social welfare payments and uh, tax credits would be going into it. Mm. You know, so that, that money is there already. Obviously, things have changed now. And, you know, people would be saying, yes, we yeah, great idea, but we can't. We could never afford it. I mean, I think everything's up for grabs at the moment. You know, they're talking about something, not necessarily the corona bonds, but some kind of rescue package within the EU. I think there might be some something there. I think 
people are open to all kinds of ideas. I mean, one of the things I talked about in Enough is Plenty was the money system and the need for public banking. You know, the, the whole way that money is created, again, uh, as debt is very problematic. But these are huge systems that it's not going to change, that are, aren't likely to change any, any so, or at least overnight. Um, so I, I, at the moment, I think it's all up for grabs in where, where the money might come from. If it was thought, if, if, if a really good social wage in the form of very good public services is thought to be necessary, along with basic income, I would see them as very complementary. And I suppose it's a question of where our where our priorities lie. Um, and if you want to make a population resilient, you know, if you want to build in shock absorbers, I would say that a basic income and really good public services are two of the, the most essential things. OK, um, and I think a lot of people would agree with you. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of reception the uh, that proposal, for instance, from the Green Party gets from the uh, the two civil war parties. And if I could just ask you finally, and I, I, st- I started with a tough question, so I'm going to end with a tough question. Cast your mind forward five years. What would you like to see in terms of the philosophy you advocate being put into practice in, in you know, in a relatively realistic, what you could hopefully uh, expect and realise there's a possibility with a certain change of mindset. What would you like to see in this country in terms of moving towards a, a, a societal philosophy along the lines of, of enough is plenty? Um, I think I would have to say the first thing I would like to see a, a, a big changes in is agriculture food uh, towards kind of regenerative agriculture, uh, what I called in the book intelligent agriculture that's based on biodiversity, on sustainable local food, food production, farmers markets, um, more small farmers, better food. I think that is one of the big, big things that I I think there's a huge surge in demand for that at the moment, uh, certainly in the circles that I move in, which maybe don't get enough attention. And I'd, lo- I'd love to see a questioning um, where we say that development isn't all about aggregate GDP growth, but that there are sectors that we that really are good to grow, like education, care, health, uh, clean energy, you know, those kind of crucial public sectors and where we're driving down the growth in, you know, oil, gas, mining, advertising, um, kind of unnecessary consumption. Uh, so there would be two things. I mean, if, if there's time to say more, I'd love to see kind of a reduction in, in, in fast travel with a kind of shift away from, you know, luxury travel to kind of sustainable, satisfying travel and some debt cancellation as well. That, that ties into what I was saying about the, the money system and a whole vision, a broader vision about sharing rather than growing and so that we're kind of giving the earth a bit of a rest. And it's a terrific vision. Uh, I think I'd have to certainly say there's definitely possibility, I would suggest, for some of it. And we'll see how far we can go. And if we venture anywhere along the road, or even if we don't and we need a reminder about it, we'd love to have you back on the podcast at some point. 
That's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify and the other usual platforms. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at, at mickcliff. Stay safe and stay in by the wall. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.